Well, folks, we're almost done. We're almost done. We've studied several churches, uh, but we're almost done with the, the seven churches of Revelation. You know, we looked at the church at Ephesus who had forsaken their first love. Then we looked at the church at Smyrna who experienced persecution and were encouraged not to fear the second death. Then we looked at the church at Pergamum where some engaged in a a really moral compromised lifestyle. Then we looked at the church at Thyatira where some believers chose to be tolerant regarding sin and teaching that was misleading believers. And they just, they just put up with that, and they should not have put up with that. Then two weeks ago, we looked at the church at Sardis that looked alive on the outside, but inwardly they were spiritually dying. In each of these churches... Each believer is encouraged to have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And, and has, it, it, that basically gives a, a ray of hope for the believer and, and the way that we should live. You know, also, each person is encouraged to respond to what the Spirit of God says to the churches. So my question is, before we get moving on here, is, Are you listening to the Spirit? Are you listening to what the Spirit has to say to you? You know, we believe, as the the Scripture says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you receive that, that gift of the Holy Spirit at the occasion of your baptism. How many of you really have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying in your life? Or are you listening to everything else around you and not listening to what the Spirit is saying to you? That's important for us, every single one of us here, to be able to listen to what the Spirit is saying. What God is saying to you, and not only just listening, because remember what James said? Don't just merely listen to the word, but do what it says. Do what it says. So for some, it might be to repent and follow Jesus. For others, it is to keep the the faith, the trust, to be obedient, to believe, and to persevere to the very end. Even in times of suffering, no matter how things might appear. That's what it's all about, guys. You know, each individual must decide for themselves who they will follow and what they're going to believe. Because, see, when the day of judgment comes, and the day of judgment is coming, we just don't know when. I'm not going to get to stand up for Dave, and Dave's not going to get to stand up for me. I'm not even going to get to stand up for Sarah, who's my wife, And Sarah can't stand up for me. We each will have to stand before the Lord on our own to face judgment. So it is important 
we got to get this thing right. Because if I live to be 70 years of age, my dad was 79. I think he was the, the and as far as his brothers, he lived the longest, um, I think, anyway. So he lived 80 years, almost 80 years. So if I get to live to be 80 years old, which that's a goal, to live 80 years, it's just a, a breath. It's, it's, it's almost like a, a mist, a vapor, as compared to eternity. Eternity never ends. It is forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And so each of us as individuals has to decide for themselves who we're going to follow and what we're going to believe. And, you know, and I, I feel bad for those who are not on the path that they need to be on. But we all need to be listening to what the Spirit has to say. So, and then he, he goes on to talk about this, this idea, you know. I just, it's really got a, it's got my heart right now. You know, and so I think that we need to really be paying attention to what, what we're believing and what we're saying and what we're, what we're following. Because he says, those who overcome, those who overcome, as Jesus has mentioned many times here, those who overcome, as Jesus often mentions, are going to be blessed and they will receive and enjoy all the promises that God has has given to us. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the sixth church, which is the church of Philadelphia. And you know, every time I I read the scripture there and I see the word Philadelphia in there, that just kind of blows my mind that that city of all cities gets to be mentioned in the Bible. It's kind of funny. But about 25 miles southeast of Sardis, on this high plateau, about 800 feet up above the surrounding countryside, set this small but really important city known as Philadelphia. We know Philadelphia as the city of what? Yes. Philadelphia was the youngest of the seven cities that are mentioned in Revelation to which Jesus sent letters to. Only about 200 years old at the time. Only 200 years old. Well, that sounds kind of old to me, doesn't it to you? 200 years? Especially when knowing that Cornerstone, Cornerstone is only about 30 years old. Maybe not even that. So 200 years sounds old. It's located at the intersection of a, of a, of several trade routes, as well as the, what they call the Imperial Post Road. It was called the Imperial Post Road. Philadelphia quickly became known as, it says here, the gateway to the east. That's what Philadelphia became known as. It was, Originally built as a missionary outpost intended to spread what they called Hellenistic culture to the, to the regions of Lydia and, uh, I think it's called Phrygia. They did such a good job that by AD 19, the Lydian language was totally overtaken by the Greek language. Hmm. And although the city benefited greatly from its prime location, it also sat on something really serious. 
It was, it's like out being out in California in that area there. It sat on a geological fault, you know, suffering from frequent earthquakes and aftershocks. And so the tremors were so devastating that what would happen is the folks often had to abandon their homes and their businesses to live in tents on the plains outside of the city because they didn't know if there was going to be an earthquake and then, you know, one of their buildings would come down on them. And so despite the constant dread of yet another underground eruption, what happened was Philadelphia was still this this bustling little town full of energy. So when a, a letter carrier following the Imperial Post Road arrived in town, they were probably plenty of friendly folks willing to point him in the direction of this small group of Christ followers that gathered every Sunday morning. You know, this group of believers was small, but exceptionally significant in the scripture. So this morning I have asked my brother Dave to come forward and he is going to open that letter up um, illegally. And um, he's going to read for us uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. So Dave, would you come on up and grab the letter out of there? You can put the flag down. We don't need the flag up. Um, and grab that letter and, and come up here and, and make sure you read into that microphone there so everybody can hear you. Dear brothers and sisters of the Cornerstone Church of Christ, I share to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy, true, and holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claims to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write them, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God's love be made complete in your, in us sincerely, the Apostle John. Thank you, sir. As you may have already noticed, what Jesus does 
Jesus has nothing negative to say about this church in Philadelphia. Rather, his letter is flowing with many positive things and a lot of praise for this church. So before complimenting the church, however, Jesus begins his letter as he does the very opening of all of his letters. He begins by sharing his credentials, who he is, what he stands for. So Jesus is sharing his credentials with us. Jesus identifies himself with three terms, three key terms in this letter. The first one is this. Jesus identifies himself as the one who is holy. Notice what it says. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy. Him who is holy. You know, the Old Testament is filled with references to the holiness of God. In fact, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3 says, says this. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know, it's this very same verse right here that is repeated over and over in heaven, you know, by the four living beings in Revelation. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's what the four beings are saying around the throne of the great God. You know, this this verse is repeated over and over again. Jesus is identifying himself as the one who is holy. You know, it's clear. it's, It's a very clear and direct claim to his deity of who he is. He is God. He is holy. He is the holy God. And so Jesus makes that clear. He says, the one who is holy. That's who he's talking about himself there. And then Peter affirms in in John chapter 6, verse 69, he says this, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. What a great passage that the apostles might have actually got it. They knew who he was. To, To be holy means to be completely flawless, to be completely faultless. You know, to say that Jesus is holy is to say that he is completely sinless, that his character is absolutely untarnished, absolutely untarnished, unblemished, and free from any moral defects. You know, Jesus is the essence of purity and such, he's such a great example for us to follow of what it means to be pure, what it means to be, you know, uh, faultless, flawless, sinless. He is a great example for us to follow. You know, and what a joy to know that our God isn't like us. That's a joy to know that he is not like me. I am not God, he is. Praise the Lord. We are fallen people. We are full of flaws and faults and and failings. You know, we are selfish and and we're conceited and we're lustful and we're gluttons and we're careless and sometimes we're even cruel. But not God. And not our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have a holy God. Jonathan Edwards 
who is really famous for a lot of his sermons on hell, once said this. He said, a true love of God must begin with a delight in his holiness. It, that's the start. He says it, it must begin with a delight in his holiness and not with a delight in any other attribute for no other attribute is truly lovely without this, without his holiness, is what he's saying there. The fact that such a holy being would have nothing critical to say about the church at Philadelphia speaks volumes about that humble congregation. It really speaks volumes about them. So the first thing that he says is that about being holy the one who is holy. Then second of all, Jesus describes himself as the one who is true. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write these words of him who is holy and true. Holy and true. You know, Warren Wiersbe says the word true means this, the original as opposed to a copy. In other words, the authentic as opposed to an imitation. Jesus is not the imitation. Jesus is not the copy. Jesus is the thing. He is. Jesus is the true light, the, the true bread, the true vine. Jesus is truth himself. He's what defines truth. It's Jesus. He is the original. Everything else is a copy. He is the authentic. Everything else is only imitation. And so there are plenty of cheap imitations out there, lesser gods that, that promise pleasure, prosperity, promise position. But they're just dime store knockoffs of the real thing. Here's what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. This is what it says. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. He is the true God and eternal life. Do you want eternal life? Does everybody here want eternal life? If we do, then where do we find it? We find it in Jesus. Because it says that he is the true God and eternal life. We find it in Jesus. Jesus was assuring the believers in Philadelphia, and he's assuring us today that he is for real. In other words, he is the real deal. Nothing else, everything else is a, is a cheap knockoff, but Jesus is the real deal. And then the third thing that he does is that not only does he say about holy and true, but Jesus credits himself as the one who holds the key of David. Notice what it says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write these, these words, of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. This verse is taken directly out of the Old Testament from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. For you see, a long time ago, Israel is invaded by, by their enemy, 
there were several enemies that invaded them, the Babylonians, but the Assyrians were probably one of the, the hardest and, and most difficult one of their enemies. I mean, just cruel people. You know, while, while the invasion was bad enough, there was also, they were also experiencing this corruption with, with, within their, their own city there. Uh, this guy by the name of, of Shebna, who was essentially the prime minister of Israel at the time, was using his office for his own gain and making side deals with the enemy. Does that sound familiar to you? God saw it that that Shebna would be removed from his office and he replaced him with a faithful and just man, Eliakim. Eliakim was replaced, replaced Shebna and was put in place and given authority over the nation. And this is what God said to Eliakim. He says this in, in, in Isaiah 22, 22. He says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. The key of David represented Eliakim's position and honor and authority over the nation of Israel. So why does Jesus use that phrase then? Well, by quoting this verse in the description of himself, what Jesus is indicating right here, right now, is that he is truly the highest of authority. It's him and him alone. What he says goes. What he does, no one can undo. Jesus is the supreme authority. That's what he's claiming right there. Nothing happens in this world without his permission. God is always going to be in control no matter what. No matter what Joe Biden does, no matter what Donald Trump does, or whoever else is going to be president, Jesus is still in control. Nothing happens in this world without his permission. Nothing happens that is part of his plan. And and, and he was about to open a door for the church in Philadelphia that no one could shut. So let's take a look at the compliment that Jesus gives these saints in Philadelphia. You know, Jesus follows his credentials by telling the church. Usually what he would do is he would follow his credentials by um, condemning them for something. But this church, he doesn't condemn them for anything. And so he gives them a compliment. He, he, he says this, he says, I know your deeds. See, I have, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Wow. Again, I want you to, to see there. He says, I know your deeds. Jesus knows us. What's that thing um, that we have over our door at home? Jesus loves me, this I know. You heard that before the Bible tells me so? Over our door, we have a sign that says, Jesus knows me, this I love. Jesus knows me. He knows you. He says, I know your deeds. All throughout the New Testament, whenever anyone speaks of an open door, it always is a metaphor for an opportunity to serve or to minister. Specifically, a a chance to be able to share the gospel message. 
Paul told the Corinthian believers these words. He said, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, he says, because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. And then he reminds the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, he says this, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message. Pray for us so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which he says, I am in chains. He was in chains for, chains for the, the mystery, the, the, the message of Christ. So even though their numbers were few, Jesus was going to open a door for them to have a powerful and effective ministry. A powerful and effective ministry to share the message of Jesus and to see lives being changed for time and eternity. That's what the, the gospel does. You see, this wasn't a big church at all. They had very little strength of their own. It was a, it was a small church in a small town. But it was a faithful church. It was an obedient church. They may not have had a large attendance, but they had a large heart for Jesus and a desire to do his work. You know, their task might have been impossible, but Jesus said this. He said, Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. We need to cling to that verse sometimes because I think sometimes we don't do things because we don't think we can do them. But what is impossible with man, God can always see that through. Jesus was about to open a door for them, for the church at Philadelphia, giving them an opportunity to reach the community around them with the message of his saving grace. And no one, no one was going to be able to take that from them because God's the one that opened the door. No one can shut that door. Not for a lack of trying though. Apparently there was a significant Jewish population in Philadelphia and, and they missed them. They missed that memo about brotherly love. They sure did. You know, they probably shut the, the, the Christians out of the synagogue, which was their place of worship, making it tough for them to meet together. But you know what? The, the old saying is true. Where one door shuts, another one opens, doesn't it? Another door will open. And see, because of the strategic location of Philadelphia, known as the gateway to the east, because of their strategic location, the church at Philadelphia may not have had a lot of local members in their church, but they would meet a lot of people who were traveling. They had the opportunity to be able to do that. So they would have the opportunity to share Jesus just as, just as the, the Greek language had spread decades earlier. They were able to spread the message just like that as well because a lot of people traveled through there. And although they may not even see the effects of their ministry during their lifetime, their influence would be far reaching and long lasting. For you see, the church in Philadelphia remained strong and effective even after the region had been occupied by the Muslims. And, and they didn't even surrender up until like the 14th century. And although they were the smallest of all the seven churches in Asia there that, that Jesus sent letters to, even though they were the smallest, they outlasted the six other churches by centuries. They outlasted them that long. 
You know, what, what, a, what a sense of hope this should give us. Hope doesn't fail because Jesus doesn't fail. Hope doesn't fail because Jesus doesn't fail. It's not about us. So look back again and look forward to what he tells the church at Philadelphia. Notice what he says there. Jesus has the authority and the power to do all that he says he's going to do. He has that power. And so I want you, I want you to remember this. Remember what Jesus has in store for the believers. Not just the believers in Philadelphia, but all believers of all time who remain faithful to him. Look down through that passage there that that we read this morning. Jesus says, I know. I know your deeds in verse 8. Jesus says, I have. I have placed you an open, I've placed you an open door that no one can shut. Notice what he says in verse 8 again. He says, I know. He says, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Then notice what he says there. He, he moves on to verse 9. He says, I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan, who are liars, to fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. I have loved you, he says. And then he goes on to say, I will, I will keep you from the hour of trial in verse 10. He says, I am coming soon. He says in, in, in verse 12 there, I will make a pillar in the, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he says then in verse 12 there, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. And he says, and I will also write on them my new name in verse 12. He makes all these promises. I want you to consider these promises of God and I want, I want you to apply them to your life personally. Apply them to your life personally. All those promises, seven or eight promises there that he makes. Jesus has the authority and he has the power to fulfill these promises. He knows your deeds. He knows your struggles. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. He knows all of that. It's because Jesus knows you. And he loves you. He has opened a door of salvation for you. And let me tell you something. No enemy of hell can shut that door. Not one. So always believe and keep his word hidden in your heart. Again, from the example of the church at Philadelphia, what a sense of hope this should give us. Folks, we're not, we're not a large church by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, we're down in numbers again today. You know, I was looking around and just, I can just, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, they're, they're missing, they're missing, they're missing. You know, and I worry about that sometimes. But let me tell you this. We may have only a little bit of strength. We may only be few in number. But we have a God who opens doors. And when he opens a door, you can rest assured that he will give us the strength to walk through it. The economy might fail us. Nations may rise and fall. This building that we're sitting in this morning, it may, it may crumble. It may fall to the ground, hopefully not with us in it. 
But the church that meets here at 1350 Tallow Hill Road will continue strong and powerful for another thousand years if need be. If God is opening that door for us to be here, we will be here. If we are faithful to walk through the doors that he opens before us, we will be here. And nothing, let me tell you folks, nothing, absolutely nothing can ever force shut the doors that Jesus opens because nothing is impossible for the one who is holy and the one who is true. That's Jesus. So finally, with no complaints about these followers, these faithful followers, Jesus goes on to make a wonderful commitment to the church at Philadelphia. He, he makes the three commitments or three promises to this congregation First of all, notice what he says there. He promises to prove his love. Notice what it says. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. I have loved you. Jesus, he, he, he promises to prove his love. Once again, Jesus pictures the, the local Jews as a synagogue of Satan because of their violent opposition to Christianity. And so he promises to utterly conquer the enemy of his church. But remember, we serve a God who defeats his enemies by making them his children. That's what he does. He makes us his children. You know, the, the imagery of these Jews falling at the feet of Christians conveys this, this idea of total surrender. They are surrendering. You know, Christians don't carry swords or, or wage war with neighboring Jews. Rather, what they do is they, they love their enemies and they pray for those who persecuted them. That's totally different than what, what um, the, the society tells us to do. Society says to pick up that stone and beat them in the head. Society says pick up that sword and, and chop their legs off or chop their arms off or chop their head off. Society says take that gun and shoot them. Jesus says love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I believe the surrender Jesus describes here is the surrendering of their hearts and their lives to him. That's what it's all about. I believe Jesus gave them victory by allowing them to win over their friends and their neighbors in the Jewish community. Remember what Jesus said a long time ago? He said in John chapter 13, verse 35, he says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you do what? If you do what, folks? If you love one another. If you love one another. You know... The love of Jesus in the lives of followers forced their enemies to finally surrender and acknowledge God's love for his children. I want to ask you a question here. Is there anyone you know who is rebelling against God? You know them. Maybe it's, maybe it's a, a spouse, your, your spouse. Maybe it's one of your children. Maybe it's a grandchild. Maybe it's a friend. Do you know of anyone who is rebelling against God? What do you do? Well, I'll tell you what you do. You pray, 
then you pray, then you pray. Then you love, and you love, and you love. So the first thing that he does is he promises to prove his love. Secondly, he promises to protect his believers in times of trial. Notice what he says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 there. He says, since you have kept my commands to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now, I will say this. Many from this passage right here are quick to cite this verse as evidence of what we would call tree or pre-tribulation rapture. Um, first of all, I don't believe in the rapture. Um, you want to talk to me about that later, you can. It's, it's never mentioned anywhere in the Bible. But not only is that jumping the gun in this passage of Scripture a little bit, but it, it kind of rips this verse out of context. For you see, this was, this was a promise to the church in Philadelphia in the late AD 60s, not to Christians worldwide 2,000 years later. He's talking about the church right there. You know, if you remember, it was in AD 70 when Titus came in and he destroyed Jerusalem. We see that in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus promised to protect these believers during a period of, of widespread persecution in their day and age. And you know they were going through that persecution tremendously. However, we can take comfort in the fact that he has made a similar promise to us. For you see, today, there are millions of Christians who are suffering and dying at the hands of godless tyrants or throughout the world just as they were back in, in, in the days of the, of the Church of Philadelphia. You know, who knows? I mean, we talked about that a few weeks ago, about 200,000 200, Christians each year are martyred. So for them, their great time of testing is now. You know, but when, whenever Christians suffer, you know, it, 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 it's really important for us to, to understand that um, Christ. He promises protection. He promises protection for our, our eternal souls. And Jesus said this in Luke chapter 21, verses 17 through 19. He says, everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair on your head will be will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. You will win life. That's what he tells us there. In other words, Jesus doesn't protect us from the tribulation that's coming. He doesn't shield us from the tribulation that's going to happen. But what he does is he protects us in the tribulation that we're going through. He will always see us through to the other side, even if it means the other side of death. That's what happens sometimes. You know, and that's the frustration of prayer because we want to pray for healing. But in God's mind, sometimes healing means being with me in heaven. That's what he's talking about there. So we just need to be careful. You know, he will always see us through to the other side, even if that means the other side is death, which leads us to his last promise. Finally, Jesus promised to make them permanent fixtures in heaven, as he says in verse 12 there. The one who is victorious, he says, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they have, they, will they leave it. You know, I will write on the, write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. 
and I will also write on them my new name. For, a, for as small as the town as Philadelphia was, it boasted quite a few temples in that town. But you see, because of the violent earthquakes that plagued that area, the citizens would often flee the city during the tremors and, and return sometimes to find that those temples were completely in ruins. And, and only, the only thing that was still standing were the pillars of the, of the temple. And often the only thing that we left would be the pillars. And so those pillars were, were, were symbols of stability and, and permanence. So Jesus promises those believers and us as well that he would make them into living pillars in the temple of God. That's what we are going to be. A temple that can never be destroyed and that they would never have to, to leave again, ever, when we come into the city of God. You know, one of the customs at the time, um, back, back in that day during the Church of Philadelphia, was to inscribe the names of great leaders into the pillars of, of important buildings. And so that those leaders would be remembered for generations and generations to come. And so Jesus promises to inscribe the name of God, not just on stone or marble, which will crumble over time, but what he does is he promises to inscribe it on the hearts of his redeemed who will live with him in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem forever and ever and ever, the new heaven and the new earth forever and ever. He's going to promise to write his name on our hearts, inscribe it right on our hearts. So what a great promise that he gives to us. You know, we are not altogether different, I believe, from the church at Philadelphia, are we? We're not. The church in Philadelphia might not have appeared strong or powerful, but what an important, what an important part, you know, it's so important to keep, uh, just to remember that, you know, it's not about appearance, it's not about strength, but rather it's about faithfulness and it's about a refusal to not deny Jesus. And that's exactly what they did. You know, they, they refused to, to let their faithfulness die. They refused to deny Jesus. And we can do the same thing. You know, the size of a church or believer does not matter. You know what matters? Here's what matters. Your witness. Your witness is what matters. It's, it's your faithfulness. That's what matters. It's, it's your heart for the gospel and your love for Jesus that truly matters. That's what matters. Such a heart and a lifestyle will keep you from, from spiritual compromise and from following lies of the enemy. Have you ever noticed that when you're not in the Word, you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing? I find that in my own life. If, I, if I'm last in, in being in the Word, then I'm usually doing something that I probably shouldn't be doing. It's because... We need to stay close to that word because it keeps us from compromise. And Satan knows your weaknesses. He knows how, he knows how to compromise you. And so you need to make sure that you are in the word constantly to be, to be kept from being compromised and from believing the, the, the lies of the enemy because he is, he is just out after you. Folks, don't think for a moment that just because we are a small church here, 
that we are insignificant. We are not. The church in Philadelphia may have had little numbers or power, but they had a powerful God that they trusted and they obeyed, and so do we. We do. If we will trust him, if we will obey him, I truly believe that he will open doors of opportunity for us right here, right now. We have that opportunity right now as the invitation is open for each of us to surrender our hearts. I'm going to ask the band to come on up, if you would, please. And I truly believe that he will open the doors of opportunity for us right here, right now. We have an opportunity right now as the invitation is open for each of us to to surrender our hearts and our lives to Jesus. See, here's what happens. Jesus beckons us to fall at his feet and acknowledge that he is the one who is true and he is the one who is holy. He is the one who has supreme authority. He is the one who has never-ending love for each one of us here today. It doesn't require a lot of strength. Do you know what it requires? It requires a lot of faith. Faith in Him. The faith the size of a grain of mustard seed. Do you have that faith? Will you come this morning? We're going to stand and we're going to sing.